You are listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, hosted and created by me, Imani, a researcher. This is the podcast for people who research people. In this episode, I speak with Nicole. MySpace within UX research really started from a place of clinical trials, a place of wanting to understand how do we level up research methodology. I have a background in psychology, and so I really wanted to get deeper into how people connect with the world, how we think about the world, what influences the choice that we make in the world. So I started with a research mindset, did a little bit within the academia space, and then really moved into clinical research, had a great opportunity to understand gold standard research, really understanding what a research study is structured like when you've got all of the resources and when you've got all of the the, the proper place and time in the world to, to structure it the way that you need to. And then from there, I moved into applied research. I really wanted to expand beyond creating knowledge and expand into that space of how do we use knowledge? How do we get it into the hands of people who can do something with it? So I started looking at knowledge translation. I started understanding more about implementation science. And that led me to a great career with working with the Mental Health Commission of Canada, doing some mental health research at the national level, doing some Indigenous health research, moving into Alberta Health Services. I had the opportunity to work on health systems research, on more Indigenous and population health research, moved from there into the Alberta Energy Regulator, really looking at, again, how do we push the boundaries of where we apply user experience? I think it's it's such a, a gift that we have in the UX space that we not only work in tech and a lot of the stereotypical UX spaces, but we can really start to think, especially after you've had a few years of experience about what are the areas we should be considering user experience, but we're not? What are the areas that we can use our UX expertise to really bring a different lens and a different perspective and enhance the richness of how we understand the people that we serve, the people we create for? So I got to do some of that with the Alberta Energy Regulator, got to have the experience of building out a research practice there, and from there moved to Smart Technologies, where I took on the role of a principal researcher and also had the opportunity to really scale and build our research practice and understand UX from that education technology perspective. Clinical research is the gold standard of research, so that had a positive impact on how Nicole approaches UX research. Considering that she's used to dealing with confidential research, she'll share her perspective on how to share NDA-protected work on your job application and how to get hired. How has getting started in clinical research, it affected how you approach applying for UX researcher roles and also hiring other UX researchers. It's affected in two main ways. So when we think about how it affects when I'm applying for roles, I always bring up the fact that I started in, as you mentioned, this gold standard environment. And that is really critical, I think, in our UX space, especially if you are in a UX role that is very qualitative focus. Because a lot of times we get those questions on, how should I trust qualitative research? Or you spoke to five people, why do why should I make a decision based on that? How do I know that there's an element of rigor? Or even sometimes just defending our existence in the organization, there's this 
huge misconception that anyone can talk to customers, anyone can do an interview. And so for me, letting people know that my lens of research comes from that gold standard, ultimate rigor, really helps people understand right off the bat, this is the perspective that I'm bringing. It really helps me make that argument for qualitative research still being within the social sciences. It is still a scientific method. It is just a different type of scientific method. And then the other piece of it, too, is it really helps me, especially with a research leadership lens, having those conversations when we have to adapt research, when we have to adjust research. One of the questions that comes up all of the time in any interview is centered around how do you balance the needs of the organization with research needs in terms of rigor, in terms of methodology? How do you turn research around quickly? There's always something that really gets at, how do I bring you on as a researcher who's not going to slow things down for me or who isn't going to become a bottleneck? And so being able to speak from that space of having done clinical research means that when I am making those adjustments, when I'm making those adaptations, I can really walk our stakeholders, I can walk our team through where it makes sense to adapt, where it makes sense to adjust, or the times where we do have to say this is not feasible, we have a really, really good backbone. We have a really good explanation as to why that is. And to the second question around how does that impact hiring, when I'm interviewing research candidates, I really want to hear their ability to explain the methods, to explain what they're doing, to explain the why. I like to get into conversations around how do you walk a team through a proposed research approach? How do you handle a situation where perhaps a product manager has come to you and said, hey, you need to go do a survey? As a researcher, your job is to have those discussions around why are we doing a survey? Let's walk it back to to some of our research questions. Let's walk it back to some of our research objectives. Your job is to give your expert opinion on what particular method or approach is going to be most helpful in that situation. So I like to have those discussions with candidates around how you handle those situations. And I think coming from that space of clinical research has really prepared me to to drive those conversations, both from the hiring side as well as from the applicant side. I would also imagine when you're interviewing people who are applying for UX researcher roles, thinking about how UX researchers scale is probably important as well. I know in clinical trials, there is scaling in a different context. But Mm -hmm. what do you think about that? How do you, when you're interviewing a UX researcher, how are you thinking about how they're thinking about scaling UX research? I think that there are a couple ways that we think about scale in UX research. So there's scale from the perspective of how do I replicate processes so that as the team grows, we have some structure, we have some consistency, we can even look at distributed research models. So how do I put things into place that I can now go and teach, that I can evangelize, that I can bring to other parts of the organization? That's one form of scale. The other form of scale is actually within your practice itself when we think about 
doing research with a small group of people, when we think about applying methodologies that maybe bring some experimentation design, and now we're expanding our reach from a few people to a few hundred or a few thousand people in an A-B test situation, thinking about how we work with data science and with our product data peers, looking at scaling research and, and looking at it through an administrative data lens or working with large data sets. So I think there are those two perspectives on scale. How I expect that coming from an interview candidate really depends on the level that they are being brought on at. Because if someone is being brought on as a entry-level researcher, looking at an associate-level researcher, or even an intermediate researcher, I don't necessarily expect there to be a large conversation on how do we scale the practice or what what procedures do we put in place to work with other cross-functional teams and research? The scale for me there is really more about how do you do your work in such a way that other people can jump in, can understand it, can leverage it? How do you do your work in such a way that we can preserve that shelf life of the work you're doing? It is shareable. If someone needed to pick it up at a later date, is that something that will be feasible? With a lot of entry-level roles, you may often be working on pieces of a research project or pieces of a study. So scaling there for me is, can I be sure that the piece that you work on, someone else can now take that and roll it into the larger research study? With more of a senior role, then that's when we start looking at scale from the standpoint of practice scale, at scale from the standpoint of scaling our processes to work with other teams. And as well with the, with the more senior level, we would also look at scale from the standpoint of research operations. So sometimes research operations might fall to a senior level person to get involved with research ops on that side, or other times we might actually be hiring a dedicated research ops position. And so then we'd start having those discussions around scaling the practice itself. That's a lot to think about when you're the hiring manager for UX research roles. And not only are you a hiring manager, but you obviously have your own job as a UX researcher, as a senior level UX researcher. How do you balance your hiring responsibilities with your core UX research job responsibilities? I think the first thing that you do is you're really transparent on what is my core job. So as as a principal or as a research leader or a hybrid leadership role, however it's framed in that respective company, your core job has now expanded. So when you think about your core job previously as an IC or an individual contributor, your core job was really centered on your research projects, on your research study. Now your core job becomes looking across the research practice, building our practice, building a sustainable practice, building those cross-functional relationships, building those, those collaborative opportunities across the organization, looking at how research is evangelized, looking at who is a champion for research. All of those things become part of your core job. So I'd say the first thing is just really owning what your job has become. Because then the balance makes a lot more sense because you are now aware that day-to-day -day research is not going to be as much a part of your job as it was before. So as an IC, maybe a senior level IC, you might be looking at maybe 80% research work and 20% practice growth. In my role, that has scaled to probably 30% day-to-day research and 70% more practice growth, mentoring, leadership, collaborative work, working across the organization. So just really being transparent about what your core role has become 
And then within that, you also look at the type of work that you take on. So at this level, you'd be working a lot more probably with strategic studies. You're working with studies that don't have the same intense deadlines as you would have in day-to-day in -day project work. You're looking at studies that are more longitudinal, that have a bit more flexibility. And that becomes really essential because your day starts to look different. You go from having a very well-defined day of this is the study I'm working on today or these are the pieces I'm working on today to a day that can be interrupted very often with a, maybe a call from a colleague in another part of the organization. Maybe you need to jump on and support someone from your team. So you have to take on studies that will allow for that flexibility when you do take on day-to-day -day research work. And then the third piece I'd say is really looking at how do you structure a team. So if you are a sole researcher in a practice, you probably wouldn't be in this type of a hybrid role. And then when you start bringing people on, if people leadership becomes part of your purview, you think really intentionally about who do I hire? So when I was building our team at SMART, one of my first hires was building, bringing on a research operations person because I knew the magnitude of work that we had to take on. And if I was going to start shifting and expanding my core responsibilities, I needed someone who could really help lay the groundwork for some really solid logistics practices, some really solid processes, some really solid templates, guidelines, et cetera, to allow us to scale. And so you look at how you structure your team and, and how you ensure that all of the pieces of work that need to get covered, there is coverage and there is distribution for that. That's a lot to think about. When you are when you were talking, um, you made a few points that implied that your core responsibilities can change, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's possible that you can start a job, any job, of course, for researchers, but you can start a job and you have responsibilities A, B, C, and D, and then the company changes or you become a hiring manager and now you have additional responsibilities as well. That idea of having to balance a job description that is not set in stone, that's in flux. Yeah. Right. And it requires you to be very practical, like you mentioned, um, that you wanted to hire a research ops person early if you wanted to have research at the scale that you envisioned it. But it also requires you to be strategic and think about, OK, do you hire a senior person, a more junior person? Do you want the person to have qualitative background, quantitative background, just pure research ops? It's a lot to think about. And that's like the equivalent of having a bunch of tabs open on Google Chrome. Right. <laughs> When you are in your, when you have your hiring manager cap on, what could UX research applicants do to make it easier for you and other hiring managers? A couple things that I think right off the bat make your application so much more readable. When you are applying for a job, probably dozens, possibly hundreds of other people are applying for the same job. And so there, there are two things that could happen on the background, on the, the internal background side. You could either have a situation where a HR person, a recruiting partner is the one doing all of the screening, and therefore your application won't even make it to the hiring manager unless it gets past that screening. Or perhaps in a smaller organization, the hiring manager is the one reviewing all of the applications. In either scenario, there's only a few seconds couple minutes, if you're lucky, that you get to go through each application, each resume in detail. So having a really concise resume, and concise doesn't mean it has to always fit on one page. If you are a senior person, I expect your resume might blow to two or three pages. But 
being able to tell at a glance who you are, where you've worked, what you've achieved. I love when applicants include that section on notable achievements or any other jargon that describes things that you made an impact in, because that helps me see very quickly what you're going to bring to the organization. Because when we're looking through applications, when I'm looking through someone's resume, you kind of have two areas of your brain going at once. So you've got that standard checklist as do they have the right amount of experience? What education background do they bring? Do they have the practice experience that I need and so on? But you're also looking to see how will this person fit here? How will this person's previous experience make our company and our practice better? So the more clearly that can be articulated in that application, the easier it is for the hiring manager or if it's a recruiter who might not have in-depth knowledge of the space, that's all the more reason you want that to be really clear and, and very well laid out in your CV, in your resume. And so that we don't have to dig through and have that additional cognitive process of trying to figure out, well, what did this person actually do? One of the mistakes I see, especially early on in, in careers is I see a lot of junior researchers put together a resume that has a lot of bullet points of either job tasks or basic job competencies. As a hiring manager, that sets off a warning bell because I start to wonder, are you telling me about your experience or are you just listing bullet points that you've seen in other resumes or bullet points that you've seen on a blog post or bullet points that you picked up in a boot camp? Because you're not telling me what you actually did. You're giving me a very vanilla, generic description of that job. And that doesn't help me get to know you. So definitely, no matter how much experience you have, and I've had people that I've worked with say, well, because I'm just getting started, I don't have impact statements. Yes, you do. If you worked there, you did something, you had an impact in some way. That's why you continued to work there. So when you're crafting that resume, yes, it's great for us to have a general understanding of what your job description was, but we're only going to pay attention to that for a second or two. I want to start understanding what you brought in. Your resume should give me that window so that I can almost close my eyes and imagine what you were like on the job. So, of course, people listening can't see us, but we can see each other. When you said that, when you made that point about the bullet points and impact statements, I almost jumped out of my seat. <laughs> right. There's a difference between uh, regurgitating a job description, which is very generic right? And actually listening, you call them impact statements or your actual accomplishments. And I wanted to actually highlight that because that's very important. I know for me, when I first started my career, um, I felt the same way. Like I didn't have any accomplishments. But like you said, if you're at the job, you're doing something. You don't always mm -hmm. have to be, you don't always have to shape the entire practice of the company, but you're doing something while you're there. So it's important for people listening, especially those at the junior level, don't just list points from the job description, basically. Be very specific about what you did, what you accomplished, what you contributed to. And that's really important to have an active resume. Exactly. And it also helps a lot as you continue to grow your experience because, I mean, let's be honest, the job market of today and, and going forward is not one where most of us spend 20, 30 years at a single company. We've, we've seen a huge shift, right? So a lot of us are maybe going to spend two to five years, if that much, at a single company before we move on to a different opportunity. So 
What that means is we now have to be really intentional with the way that we craft our resume and think about it as more of a portfolio. It shouldn't just be this description of random jobs that you've done. You're really looking at building a cohesive body of work. And so the places where you include those impact statements, where you include those stories, that is your opportunity to weave together all of the experience you've had at the last three, four, five, six companies that you've worked at. And tell me how those experiences have shaped you as the researcher, as the candidate, as the person that you are today. Help me understand what you've collected from each of those places that you've worked, each of those spaces you've worked in, and who that has cobbled together who that has formed today. Because especially in our space where it's very competitive, particularly at some of the entry level and intermediate level jobs, what's going to make you stand out is really that essence of you. It sounds cliche, but it's true. It's that what are those five different things you did that other people didn't do and how you take those and apply them to your research practice. That's what's going to set off that light bulb in that hiring manager's head of, oh my God, that is the person that we need. And so never shy away from really taking that time to explain how all of your experiences uniquely fit together to make you who you are, especially if you're someone who's transitioning into UX research from a previous career. You're not fresh out of school. You're bringing professional expertise from a different domain, I really want to connect with that. And I want to understand how your skills are going to transfer into your research practice and into your researcher role, because that's what's going to bring that special spark. That's what's going to set you apart from the the very wide competition net out there. And you mentioned that when either the recruiter and or the hiring manager are looking at your resume, they're looking pretty quickly, like 30 seconds, maybe a minute if you have the time to. We're looking at a document that quickly. Are there any keywords that stand out to you? So a couple things that stand out for me. I want to see how well you actually read the job description. And it's not it's not about trying to be a trick or anything like that. There There are different needs depending on the role you're fulfilling, as well as depending on where your organization is at in that place and time. And most of us, when we craft a job description, there are two components. There are the base things that are just necessary for that role generically, but we will also include a couple bullet points that speak to things we specifically need. You mentioned earlier, sometimes you might be looking for someone with quant background. Sometimes you might be looking for someone who has expertise with a particular tool or a particular methodology. Those things are often included in the job description. So when I'm looking through your resume or a cover letter, which cover letters seem to have died, But FYI, I love cover letters. Cover letters is like that handshake. It's like it's like getting invited to dinner and a cover letter is you greeting someone at the door and saying, hey, how's it going? How's your how's your day going? Can I take your coat? And you go on in and settle into a nice dinner versus no cover letter. You just kind of bam, kick down the door and sit at the table. Right. It both gets us to the end result of dinner, but don't miss your opportunity to have that handshake. So cover letters, love them. When I see them, that stands out to me right away. And your cover letter is your opportunity to tell me what makes you perfect for this role. I want to see no matter what level you're working at, I want to see that you've put some thought into what can I bring to this role? Why, Why am I even applying for this role? 
what makes this role the right one for me? So anything that alludes to that is usually what will stand out for me, whether it is in your description of past accomplishments, your description of past impact in your resume itself, or if you did write that cover letter, showing me how you are taking all of the experience, all of the skills that you're bringing, and you're going to apply it to this job. The other thing I look out for too is mention the name of the company that you're applying to. I do understand that when we are applying en masse, we're probably sending out 50 applications a day. I absolutely understand that. However, maybe if we take a little bit of time, be more intentional with, I'm applying to a job because I see something in that job that I know I'm specially suited for. Then maybe that can cut down the volume of applications we send and we can put a little bit more time on the quality of the applications that we send. Because from a hiring manager's perspective, not every hiring manager is going to be as empathic to the fact that your reality is you've probably had to send out hundreds of applications. A lot of hiring managers really just want to see that you want to work here. You want to work with us, not just that you want a job. And so anything you can weave into your cover letter, into your resume that shows, I understand the company I'm applying for. I understand the role I'm applying for, and here are one or two things that make me the right person for that role. Just showing that you've taken the time to do that goes such a long way and is literally the difference between having your resume flagged as move on to the next round or having it dismissed. That was a beautiful analogy about the cover letter is like when um, you have someone over for dinner, but you give them a handshake first, you take their jacket, you um, exchange pleasantries. I never thought about it in that way because I'm one of those people that was like, well, cover letters are dead. No one reads them. But that made me think about it differently. So I, I love that analogy. I read them. I I read them. And it, it honestly is one of those... It's one of those subliminal things that just get it, it frames and, and colors the way that you see that application now. And the fact that so few people are doing them, it'll now make you stand out. Exactly. And for some additional context, can you tell me what types of roles have you hired for? Like what types of UX researcher roles? So I've hired for research ops roles. I've hired for intermediate roles. I've hired for senior roles as well as for research lead roles. Mm hmm. And you've already touched on these two, these next two questions a little bit, mm -hmm. but I want to ask more directly. When you're hiring for UX researcher roles, regardless of the level, what are some red flags on the application? Yeah, I'd say the big, the big red flag, which we mentioned earlier, is just listing that generic, here are the bullet points of the job description. Because honestly, that makes me question, did you did you actually do the job? Did were you, like it makes me question the role that you played. It makes me question how authentic is this resume in front of me? Because I I understand trying to strike that balance especially again when you're early on and building your experience, you want to come across as someone who's capable of the job. However, at the same time, you don't want to over leverage yourself and put yourself in a situation where you are applying for a senior level role that you're just not ready for yet. Because I guarantee you, this is an applied field. It will show and it will show very, very early on. So red flags that I'm looking out for are, is this an exaggeration of the skills and competencies that you are bringing? Or is this an accurate representation of you? And seeing Seeing a, a job description on a resume that doesn't tell me anything about the part you actually played makes me question, do you actually know these things or 
did you read or hear somewhere that these are good things to include on a job application? Those, that's probably one of the biggest red flags for me. So in essence, not having an application that's customized, that's very generic. Like you said, I think vanilla was the word you used earlier. Not even just customized, but that doesn't reflect your actual role in the job, mm. right? So I want to know, what did you do when you were a, re- a UX researcher at ABC Enterprise? What did you do in your role, as opposed to a job description that looks like it's copied and pasted from every UX researcher job description out there? The other red flag, too, is having having bullet points on your resume that don't quite line up with your experience level. So for example, if you tell me you have two years of research experience, but then you tell me you've got expertise in 15 methodologies, <laughs> that again makes me go, did you attend a boot camp and read a chapter on 15 methodologies and you're going to list all of them in there? And I understand the intent is probably to show here are all of the things that I'm aware of and could potentially do, but it doesn't come across that way because you're now leaving it to me to decide how should I interpret the fact that you've got two years of experience, but are now an expert in 15 different methods. The other thing too that that can come across as a red flag is UX research and UX design, obviously we're, we're cousins in the user experience family. However, we are very different disciplines and sometimes people will apply to both at the same time. I've definitely seen applicants that I know have used the same resume for a designer job as well as a researcher job. So if you are applying as a researcher and telling me you've got a couple of years of experience in research, but the tools that you list are all design tools or all product product management tools, and none of those are UX research tools, that also for me makes me question was your experience actual research experience or were you perhaps research adjacent? and worked in a different field and worked alongside researchers or did some research type things in your role, but you're now just repackaging it to look like a UX research role. Conversely, what are some green flags on an application for UX researchers? One of the subtle ones that I look for that I don't think we always think about, being a really great user researcher is being a really great storyteller, especially as you go higher up in your career. When you get to that senior level where you have ownership end-to-end over a research study, where you are working on more impactful studies, you're also fighting tougher battles with engineers and product managers and people asking questions around why should we take your findings as gold, your ability to tell a story, to deliver a compelling narrative that is one of your strongest skills. So I'm looking for that right from the application side. If you're not able to tell a compelling narrative about yourself, then it makes me question how well are you going to tell a a compelling narrative about our products? And by the same token, someone who tells a really great story of their personal experience, how it ties into this role that they're applying for, seeing those very strong storytelling skills, seeing those strong skills at crafting a narrative, that's a huge green flag for me because that gives me some insight into how you're going to speak about your work here. The other green flag that maybe doesn't come across as strongly in the on-paper application, but once we, if we do get to that interview stage, I really love to see when people 
demonstrate that they're going to be an active player in their career. So as a people leader, as a research leader, if you are reporting into, you might be reporting even into a UX manager that might have a design background and not even have that research background. They are here to coach you, support you, help develop you in your role. However, I really want to see someone that is going to be in the driver's seat of their career and in terms of their advancement, in terms of thinking about setting their goals, what they want to grow into, what they want to get more exposure to. I want to see someone who is going to have a really strong hand in that and not just sitting back and waiting for their manager to lead that for them. And so when I'm having this conversation in the interview and you're speaking to me very articulately about where you're at in your career, where you feel you are strong, where you still want to learn, when you are proactively identifying learning opportunities or specific projects that you want to be a part of or specific practice areas that you want to grow into, that is a delightful green flag for me because that tells me that you are someone who is really going to own your career growth and you are someone that is going to show up and bring that drive to work every single day. If you are an aspiring or current UX researcher who needs help with your resume, professional brand, interview skills, cover letter, LinkedIn profile, and portfolio, consider applying for the Yizzy Research Coaching Program. Coaching clients exit the program with a refreshed resume, cover letter, research portfolio, and detailed notes to make them more competitive in the UX research job market. If you are interested or know someone who is, visit yizziresearch.com to learn more and apply. That's yizziresearch, Y-Z-Z-I, research.com. When UX researchers are applying for jobs, regardless of their level, oftentimes a lot of the work that we've done is protected under an NDA, mm-hmm. right? And oftentimes we don't know how to talk about that work. So how should applicants present NDA protected information um, when applying for a UX researcher job? Yeah. So I think the first thing you want to think about is what does an NDA mean? Why is it there? Because People, I've had people actually say that they felt the NDA meant that they couldn't talk about their role or they couldn't talk about what they did. And that is very seldom going to be the case. An NDA is typically in place to prevent the sharing of corporate secrets. You don't want things such as a specific code that your engineering team developed or a very detailed product development plan. You don't want those things to end up in the public eye. But Spaces outside of that, when you think about as a researcher, what influence you brought, what methods you brought, what expertise you brought, how did I interact with the product team, what what sorts of challenges did I deal with, those things are not going to be included in an NDA. And those are the areas that you get to really lean into when you're presenting research that was covered under an NDA. So you might have to cover up some of the, the things like final recommendations. Those are some areas that you might have to do some redacting. And lorem ipsum is a great way to do redacting on a physical presentation if you're you're presenting an actual report. Those are areas you might cover up a little bit. But when you think about how did you integrate with the product team? How did you interact with your internal stakeholders? What are some of the things that you consider before approaching a research project? 
What are some of the tools that you use? Why do you make those decisions? Those are not covered under NDA. So those are the areas that you really want to lean into. And truthfully, those are the areas that are going to matter the most to a, a prospective hiring manager because the ins and outs and the details of what you did at your previous role or your current role, without the context of that organization, it doesn't mean anything to me. Right. So I really want to to get to understand who you are as a researcher and what you're going to bring to our organization. So really leaning into those intangible pieces of how you conducted the study. Those are the areas that you can speak pretty freely about. I think that's a really good note, because I know when I've applied for UX researcher roles and I've included jobs that had me sign an NDA, I felt like I had to protect like the government secrets, right? I felt like <laughs> I felt like I was the keeper of secrets and I didn't want to say the wrong thing or mess anything up. But like you said, an important point that you made is that the person reading your resume most likely doesn't have any context or inside information about what the the context of that particular role was at that particular company anyway, right? Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. um, you wouldn't really know. So it's kind of, you would have to try really hard, like you said, to spill things like specific co- lines of code. You would have to try very intentionally to violate NDA. I like that. I think that that gives me that gives me a lot of um, assurance. And I'm sure it does for a lot of people listening. And also, what do you think about in terms of protecting the content of your application? What do you think about password protected websites or password protected portfolios, for example? I understand the reason people would want to to include that password there. I would say if you are going to have a password protected portfolio, please make sure that the password is very readily visible, either in your cover letter or within the resume that you pass on. If I'm going through, so typically when I look through applicants, I'm always going to start with your resume. And my assessment of your resume is what's going to determine if I go on to look at your portfolio or not. So that's another piece too. I've seen people kind of, I don't want to say not put the effort in, but I've seen people feel like the resume didn't matter. And so they've intentionally not built as strong of a resume as I know that they could have because they said everything's in the portfolio. But the portfolio is in reality, an extra click and a lot more time than previewing a resume. So I'm going to use your resume as that gatekeeper that lets me know if I go on to view your portfolio or not. So if all of your compelling stuff is in your portfolio, the hiring manager might never even get there. So so don't discount the importance of that resume up front. So once you've had a, once I've had a chance to read through that, then I'm going to determine, okay, I think this is a candidate I'd like to learn more about. Let me go have a look at their portfolio. If the password is right there in plain sight in your resume, I can cut and paste it. I've seen on some resumes, people had the link to the portfolio and the line right beneath it literally had the password on it. So something like that is pretty easy for me to just cut and paste. If I'm at the point of going to review your portfolio, it's because I have some interest in you already. So I don't mind taking that extra step of of copy and pasting a password and putting it in. Where it becomes challenging is if the password is not in a place that is highly visible. So I saw a resume, for example, where the portfolio link was on page one, but the password was buried somewhere on page three. That portfolio might never get opened because someone's going to just scan the first page and go, oh, there's no password. Okay, I guess I'm not going to look at your portfolio. So 
I do understand the reason that people might want to to have that password on there. There are certain things that you might feel, I worked really hard on this particular template, or I worked really hard on this particular study design, and I don't want to just put it out there for everyone to see. So if you are going to use passwords, that's fine, but please make sure they are easily accessible. They should accompany the link, and it should be really simple and straightforward to get into. That's a great piece of advice. Don't assume that the hiring manager or the recruiter will be looking at your portfolio as well. Like usually the resume for you is the first stop and don't assume that they'll make it to the next stop, which is exactly. the portfolio. And in addition to that, when thinking about NDA protected material at a higher level, you don't have to share the trade secrets of the company, but you can talk about what did you do? How did you pick your methods? Um, you can speak to what the outcome was as a result of your decision making. You can talk more about your decision making process in terms of data collection, potentially recruitment, developing insights, developing re- recommendations, and what higher level objectives you you worked against or worked with, and any higher level end results. So that's how you can actually share that protected material. And also, of course, making sure that if you have a password protected portfolio that the password is easily accessible. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Don't don't make that be the be the barrier to us actually getting into your portfolio. And I'd say what I'd add to that too is as researchers, especially in UX research, we exist for one reason and that is to have some sort of an impact, right? We we want actionable research. So when you're presenting your research, again, because I don't have the context I can't get as excited about the findings. A lot of people I've seen in portfolio presentations, 80% of it is focused on findings that are so nuanced that they only mean something to the people in that organization. And I think that speaks to why people sometimes see the NDA as such a huge impediment. Because yes, if 80% of your case study is findings, a lot of that is probably going to be blocked by your NDA. But I'd rather see 20% be findings, and the rest of it really leaning more into the impact that you had. Up front, how did you start those early discussions around what type of study? Should we do this study? How do you navigate a conversation about should we or should we not do this study? What are the things that you consider? If you're in a more senior role, how do you counsel your non-research counterparts in starting up a study? How do you walk them through things like getting landed on your research objectives? How do you walk them through developing research questions? How do you keep them involved and excited and connected throughout the study? Particularly if this is a a longer duration study, maybe you've got a longitudinal study that's carrying out over three to four months. How do you keep your stakeholders engaged throughout that time so that when those results came in, they were really excited for them. What type of impact did you have? You may not be able to share the specifics of the recommendations you made, but you can say things like, we changed our approach to in-product messaging as a result of this study, or we changed where we positioned a particular feature within a product as a result of this study, or maybe we made a change practice-wise. You can definitely speak to those levels of impact and have less of a, an emphasis on those detailed findings that probably are truly covered under your NDA. Mm-hmm. And when you're evaluating these NDA protected applications, are your expectations different depending on the career level? So for example, a junior level UX researcher as opposed to a principal level? 
Oh, definitely. So if I'm looking at a junior level person's application, I expect there's probably not going to be a whole lot around impacts because sometimes you don't even have visibility to the impact that you're having, depending on this type of company that you're coming from. If it's a larger company, you might have only been doing work on pieces of a project or pieces of a study. So you might not even have that visibility to the full scale of the impact. So at that level, I'm really looking to hear the types of questions you asked. I'm looking to hear how did you grow? Because when you're in the early stages of your career, it's really all about your ability to take in information and grow with that information. So I want to hear about the lessons that you learned. I want to hear about what can you do now as a result of having participated in this work that you couldn't do before. I want to hear your reflections on how you are taking this experience on this particular study and what it's going to mean for the next study that you do, right? I want to see like that almost cumulative impact and that cumulative thinking. That's what I'm listening out for very often with junior level researchers. I'm listening to hear when you had a question or when something was unclear, because it's going to be unclear at some point, how did you navigate that? What did you do? If you needed clarity, did you speak up? Who did you go to? How did you take that feedback? Or did you just press on because you didn't think that you needed to involve anyone? Those are the, the details that I'm more interested in at that junior intermediate level. Whereas at a senior level, now I'm more interested in those details around how do you manage a study end-to-end? How do you manage internal stakeholder relationships? How do you follow up post-study? How do you make decisions about what studies we take on, what studies we do not take on? How do you, in part of your work, how do you teach? How do you evangelize the practice of UX research? How do you help non-researchers understand who we are, what we do, what we offer? And of course, what sort of impact and at what level did the research you were involved in have for the organization, for the product, et cetera? And also an important part, I would imagine, when um, speaking with different researchers at different levels is understanding how they think about research road mapping and research planning. Um, that's probably something that you look forward to when hiring. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I would imagine if you're talking to someone who's like fresh out of undergrad and they're applying for a junior level role, you probably wouldn't expect them to be able to think about research road mapping, right? But someone right. who's a senior researcher or a principal level or a VP of research, you probably would imagine that they would. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, at, at a junior level, I'm more listening out for road mapping to me almost sounds more like how do you balance the many tasks that you might be assigned or the many pieces that you're working on? That's almost what your roadmap becomes almost a personal roadmap in terms of here are all the projects, here are all the pieces that I'm working on, here's what I'm how I'm going to structure my week, here's how I'm going to structure my workday. So I listen out for those at the junior level. At a senior level, at any type of leadership level, I want to hear more of that planning. So what do you consider when you think about structuring research to support an entire product vertical, structuring research to support an entire practice? I want to understand how are you connecting research back to the business? I want to understand what are you building into your research practice to frankly make people care about it, right? When we are having these tough discussions around how do we increase research visibility, how do we get to that point where people feel like, I don't want to make this move until I brought in user research, a big piece of that 
is really around how have you positioned research such that people can find value in it. And a key element of that is really connecting it back to different goals and objectives. That can be organizational level objectives. That can be product level objectives. If you're working with a product manager I want, or a head of product, I want to understand how you navigate discussions around a vision for the product. How do you navigate maybe a staged approach to learning about a particular knowledge area, a particular product feature? How do you navigate MVPs and putting out a minimum viable product and eventually translating that and growing it into a fulsome product? Those are the the areas that I'm listening out for a bit more on the senior side. So this is a lot to consider, even when you are someone who's applying for UX researcher roles, right? You have your Mm -hmm. resume, your cover letter, since you are one of the um, managers that actually reads them and values them, right? Then you also have (laughs) your portfolio. Then you go into the actual interview. What does a UX researcher candidate do or say during an interview that makes you confident that they actually know what they're doing? I would say it is giving concrete examples. So within research, we we have two components, I think, to any question that we answer. We've got theory, and we have an actual concrete example that shows how you applied the theory in real life. That is the piece that, that I listen out for to let me know that you've actually done this versus you've read about it. Now, I think something else to add in here as well is not everyone will come having had experience in every possible area. And I know people have asked me before, how do I indicate that I have an interest in an area or that I'm aware of an area without making it seem like I'm exaggerating expertise in that area? And you can absolutely, even in your skills section, for example, in your resume or in your 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 portfolio, you can show these are the areas that I have actual expertise in, and then these are the areas that I have a working knowledge of, or these are the areas that I'd like to develop more deeply. These are the areas that I'd like to grow my experience in, because then that says to me, oh, hey, this person knows about A-B testing. They haven't done it before, but they know enough about it to know that it's something they'd like extra experience in. So you can absolutely include those bits and pieces in there. But when I'm thinking about how do I know that you've done this before? I want to hear concrete examples of here's what I actually did, as opposed to here's what I would do, or here's what I would think about. And when you sit through that interview, after the first few minutes, you begin to see that that come up across so much more in just the phrasing and the words that people use. You hear a lot of the, well, I would do this, or I think this would work, or I might do this, versus someone who says, yeah, here's an example of when this happened, and here's what I did, and here's how it went down. I also sometimes will probe a little bit on the details, because When you are giving a description of something you did, you lived through, you saw live in action, you have all the details. So I want to actually hear the details of, okay, so you had a time when you you had to really advocate for a particular area of user experience that was lacking in the product, and you're telling me about how you went about doing that. What did you actually say? What was the response back? What what other elements did you bring into that discussion? I want to hear those actual concrete examples of what you did. I would also imagine that when you're interviewing someone who's more senior level, you would probably want them to talk about their experience bringing in the actual business context and not just the research context. Mm-hmm. 
Definitely. When you're looking at that senior level or any level that has any leadership, so whether it's a senior level or it could be a staff level, it could be a research lead level, again, it really comes down to how do you make research digestible for the rest of the organization? How do you make it meaningful for the rest of the organization? And one of the the main ways you can do that is you have to connect it back to goals, whether it is organizational goals, whether it is product goals, cross-functional goals. If we're in a space where we are trying to build the connections that research has to maybe marketing or to dev teams or to product marketing teams, branding teams, if we're trying to build our connections across the organization, sometimes we want to tap into goals that other organizational leaders might be working on and look at ways that research can inform or support that. So again, bringing in that context beyond just the the basic functionality or just the basic tenets of the product, but really expanding that to our business goals, whether that's increasing conversions, whether that is increasing revenue, whether that is innovation opportunities, but really showing that you have the ability to think about as an organization, here's what we are trying to achieve, and then break that down to here's what user research can do to help get us there. Also with senior level applicants, I would also imagine that it's important to think about recommendations. As a hiring manager, do you expect your senior level applicants to talk about the the rationale behind recommendations or or trying to think about why they make the suggestions that they do and having a logic behind that do you try to assess what their logic is behind recommendation and insight gleaning there's just there are a couple of things that you look at one at a senior level because you're responsible for that end to end research i want to hear how you discern what you bring forth from the research project. Because particularly if it's a larger product, you might have a ton of findings and a ton of insights. How do you distill that down when you're thinking about what you're going to convey back to your product teams? How do you determine what to include? How do you determine what to exclude? How do you term, how do you determine what to recommend for follow-up in a future research study? How do you determine what you're going to really push hard on and and fight very strongly for? How do you determine the areas that maybe you're just going to hang back a little bit? And if they take it, they take it. If they don't, they don't. How do you, because you have to include a little bit of all of that. So I want to understand internally, how do you navigate those conversations? And what are the things that you consider when you arrive at those different decisions? And also I use the term business context. How would you define business context for UX researchers? I'd say business context for UX research at its heart is really how is what you are investigating or learning going to help the business succeed? To me, that's really about what business context is ultimately. It's showing that you have a pulse on what the business is trying to achieve. And ideally, the research insights we're bringing forward should really be contributing to that business's success. The other element of business context and sometimes can be referred to as domain context is showing how you have an understanding of the space that we are working in and how you are bringing that understanding into the research insights that you are bringing forward. So for example, in in EdTech, we will understand what we see in product, what we see in terms of research questions and and objectives for that particular study, but we also have to relate it to the wider world of education. 
So that business context now begins understanding things like how has the scope or the landscape of education changed over the last two years during the pandemic? It would mean bringing in pieces like how has the the main player in buying EdTech tools changed? So showing, especially at a, at a more advanced or more leadership level, showing how you can integrate that domain expertise, that contextual knowledge into your research findings and into your research recommendations. And also business context can also probably include at a more um, practical level, at a more granular level, connecting your UX research to the company OKRs or KPIs or even things like the NPS score. I know NPS scores are controversial. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to connect um, your impact to those more quantitative measures as well that span across the wider company or the wider product probably is important as well. Yeah, definitely. So every organization is going to have some form of performance metrics. So when you think about business goals, you can think about it in two ways. You have, as you mentioned, those quantitative metrics. So maybe that is X percentage of conversions. Maybe that is an adoption metric where we're looking at a certain percentage of new users go on to become regular users within a given time frame. Maybe that is in terms of dollars spent. Maybe we are trying to increase our individual subscription value, right? So there are those concrete metrics that are very quantitative, that are are very objective. But the other aspect I'd say when you think about KPIs and larger business objectives can be things like a product manager's overall vision for a particular product vertical or a particular feature set. What are they trying to achieve by making this change within the product? We can also think about it in terms of user experience goals. A lot of companies are going through this stage right now where you're trying to move along that continuum of what ideal great user experience looks like. So we start from that place of, well, the product should function. Okay, great. Now we level up to shouldn't just function, but it should be usable. Like I should actually be able to use it to fulfill my daily needs. Great. Then we go to Not only should it be usable, but it should be useful. It should add value to me. It should add value to my life. It should add value to my business practice, whatever context I'm using your product in. Then once we get to that place of we're adding value, you still try to level up even more to, can it not only be useful, but can it be enjoyable? Can this be something that I'm happy while I use it? Can this be something that I look forward to using, that I enjoy using over competitors in the field? And if you're really killing it, you get to that space of sheer delight, where now the product starts to do things that I always hoped it would, but oh my God, I didn't actually think it would, but it did. And now my mind is blown and I'm just beyond the moon, right? (laughs) So we see that companies are really starting to take stock of where they're at on that continuum and trying to progress to that next level. So when you think about that product vision, that user experience vision, it might not be expressed in a quantitative metric such as the traditional KPIs we think about, but as a user researcher, especially if you're at a more senior level where you're doing more strategic research and more foundational research, those are some of the things that you want to start thinking about. We talked about road mapping earlier on, having that core understanding from the PMs usually on what is the overall vision for this product? What's the overall product vision as well as UX vision? Then you can start working in 
in parallel with that product development team on how and where do we test? How and where do we iterate? What do we release? When is it good enough? How do we make a plan that ensures we are continuously learning through the release of this product? So each successive release is getting us closer to that overarching vision that we identified. So that's another way that you think about those business goals that's a little different from those quantitative KPIs, but it's equally important from a UX research perspective. There are a lot of ways from company to company, it mm-hmm. varies how you would think about and um, conceptualize business context. How do you structure, how do you as a hiring manager structure the interview process in a way that allows you to evaluate an applicant fairly and give them a chance to shine? Coming back to to what we look for in interviews and what you can bring across as a candidate interviews, that type of business lens, that type of looking beyond the immediate product research lens is what can set you apart, especially when you're applying to those more senior roles. So it's an area that we don't think about as being core and centric to user research. But if you are in an interview and you are taking your 15 minutes to shine and you're thinking about what are things that I should pull in that are going to set me apart from other candidates, that business mindset is gold. It is so, so important. To, to get to the, the, the second piece of that question around how we structure the interview process. So for me, I look at it in two parts. So when I'm going through that initial application space, I actually will usually develop a spreadsheet that I'm going to use to give objective scores, objective um, metrics for assessing each candidate. And the reason is when you've got 100 resumes coming at you, if you are just relying on a scan and a couple quick notes, I think that becomes unfair to the candidates at a certain point because we're human. Fatigue sets in. You've, you've gone through the 50th resume for today and you know that tomorrow there's 100 more. Fatigue sets in, right? Biases set in. And the person who is being viewed at the end of the day might be at a disadvantage just because of the time of day their resume is being viewed at. And mm. I really want to be as fair as possible. So I like to bring as much objectivity to my screening process as I can. So I really think about What are the things that I need to see from a candidate for a candidate to be successful in this role? And I will actually structure those across a spreadsheet and I will give a score based on, I see the candidate does not display any of this. I see the candidate maybe displays some of this, but with would require a bit of assistance to fully operationalize it at work, or the candidate is bringing this right off the bat full score. So that's one of the things that I use in the screening process. Then the interview process itself, I do like to start with more of just an informal, quick half-hour meeting, which usually ends up progressing to about 45 minutes, but we typically schedule it for about half an hour. And I think that's the opportunity where you, as a candidate, you know that I've got your resume. I've, I've seen all of the, the bullet points. This is your opportunity to show me who you are as a person, because ultimately, I'm not just hiring a a job title. I'm hiring a person. I'm hiring a human being. So this is your opportunity to show me who you are. Show me those, those intangible things that you couldn't quite nail down on paper, that can't quite be brought across with a pen. Now you have the opportunity to use your voice and everything that you are to bring that across in that half hour interview. 
So that's why I like to start out with more of that informal interview. And I'm kind of getting a sense of fit. I'm getting a sense of what matters to you? What are you looking for in an organization? This is your opportunity to ask me questions, to get additional clarification. It's also an opportunity for you to find out what do you need to know to be successful in the next round? Because I know historically, we kind of did the opposite. I remember when I was first starting out, most of my early interviews, the first one was the more technical interview. And if you made it through that, then you got brought on to that informal kind of culture fit interview. But what I felt that put me at a disadvantage for was I was going in kind of blind. I mean, you can only ascertain so much from a job description or a job posting. And I'm going into this hardcore technical interview, wishing that I'd had an opportunity to get clarity on so many more areas so I could be more prepared. So I find that doing that informal upfront allows that space for the candidate to maybe ask a few more questions that's going to help them come through if they make it to the next round in that technical round and and have a better chance to really showcase who they are and what they bring to the role. And so from that, the next round usually will do a case study. And that's kind of like a portfolio review. You can choose to walk through one, two, three different projects that you've done in the past that you think are applicable to this role. And again, I'm not so much looking for the details of the findings, but I'm really looking for what did you bring to that project? How did you approach it? What was the impact it had? How did you work with other people? How did you collaborate? How did you think about it, your considerations and so on? From there, that's usually when we'd go to a panel interview, depending on the type of role that we're hiring for, we might do the case study and the panel interview, just have that combined where we have other members of the team. They might sit in with you and have the opportunity to ask questions. If we're hiring for a more senior role, then we'll do that case study panel interview and then have breakout one-on-ones where you'll have more one-on-one time with different cross-functional leaders that you're going to be interacting with more regularly. That is the opportunity for you to get to know the different players at that company. And it's also the opportunity for you to show, especially in a more senior role, how you're able to kind of shift the cap that you wear, depending on the team member that you're working with. So it's your opportunity to show here is my approach to working with product management. Here's my approach to working with engineering. Here's my approach to working with field specialists. Here's my approach to working with customer experience, customer success. So that's that opportunity for you to show the different facets of what you bring to the role and how you would interact with different team members. That's a very thorough and very fair process. You have the case study, you have this, the classic interview, and then you said you have the panel interview. You have a lot of opportunities to shine as an applicant. You already shared a ton of fantastic advice. Um, As we wrap up, what can UX research candidates at each career and seniority level do to improve their chances of being hired for a UX researcher role? I'd say at a junior entry-level role, Show your enthusiasm, show your willingness to learn, show examples of how you have learned and and, and grew in areas in the past that lets me know that, wow, this is someone that really wants to be in this space and is going to be teachable 
This is someone who is going to be proactive in identifying learning opportunities for themselves. And this is someone that I really see is going to continue to grow and progress in their career. I would say at a mid-level, that's when you can really show your, your breadth of experience with different research approaches, different research methodologies. That is where you can really show how you shine in the art of executing studies, because that's something that we really look for at that mid-level. You might not be doing full end-to-end research, but you would be doing independent pieces of work. So I'd like to see how you can take on different portions of work independently. I'd like to start understanding more about how you interact with other members on the team. And then at the senior level, that's the opportunity to really show that strategic business lens that you bring to user research. Because at the strategic, at the senior level, you're now combining your craft expertise with your ability to impact the business, with your ability to help us grow the practice, with your ability to mentor and provide guidance to other researchers. So speak to those things when you're at the more senior level. Every level, speak to what you bring uniquely. That's what's likely going to get you hired because as more and more people grow into our space, and it's great that we're, we're in a, a, a space that more and more people want to join, that means that more and more people are going to bring those those generic qualities. So what's going to likely get you in the door is showing how your unique experience makes you a great candidate and that added bonus of making that connection between your unique experience and this job opportunity in front of you. And at any level, that is something you should be doing. And tell a great story. Be engaging. Show me that you can construct that narrative and, and, and really sell me on who you are as a person, because that lets me know how you're going to sell our internal stakeholders on the research that you're doing. It's not often that I get to speak with a hiring manager at length. One of the most memorable parts of my conversation with Nicole was her thoughts on sharing NDA protected information on your resume and cover letter. After talking with Nicole, I actually revamped my resume and felt more confident applying for roles. And hopefully you'll be able to revisit your NDA protected experiences and have the same experience. Thanks for listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, the podcast for people who research people. I'm Imani, the host and creator. Visit yizzyresearch.com for podcast show notes and information about my UX research coaching program. Again, that's yizzyresearch.com, Y-Z-Z-I research.com. This podcast was produced by Whisper and Mutter.